And so, Lord God, we thank you that you're here, you're present. I especially thank you for that because, God, I'm pretty much sure that nobody here is going to fully understand the sermon. I don't fully understand the sermon. And that shouldn't surprise us because we're talking about you, but I thank you that you're not a thing, you're a person. And, God, I don't understand my wife, but I see her. And I love her, and I trust her. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to see you and to love you and to trust you and to know that you are speaking your word all the time or there would be nothing, <laughs> nothing would exist. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, help us to hear your word and, Lord, if not to entirely understand it, at least to see you because you're the living word, Jesus, and uh, you have revealed yourself to us. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Well, last week, um, you know, this is like our 38th sermon in Romans, so if you get confused by anything in the sermon, just go back and listen to 37 and you'll get it. Okay, so anyway, this is our 38th, I think it's our 38th. And last week we talked about Pontius Pilate King Herod, Emperor Nero, and the Antichrist. We talked about the rulers and authorities, the principalities and the powers, and uh, we saw that Christ conquered the powers by surrendering to the powers, by surrendering his powers, not to the powers, surrendering his powers, but in a way, submitting to the powers. We saw that Christ conquered the powers by surrendering power, and that Christ conquered the authorities by subjecting himself to their abuse. And that Christ still conquers through you whenever you bleed the vengeance of God. In other words, whenever you forgive, whenever you're kind to the unkind. We read this. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Now I'm trying to give you the most literal um, interpretation. So you'll see kind of the English Standard Version and then kind of some additions and things. Not because it's wrong, but just because we're trying to get exactly what Paul said. He writes, do not be conquered by the evil, but conquer the evil in the good. Let every soul, every psyche, be subject, hooper echo, uh, to higher authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, sunadesis, or consciousness. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything <laughs> except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For you will not commit adultery, you will not murder, you will not steal, you will not covet, and any other command are brought together under one head in the word, the logos. You will love your neighbor as yourself. The love does no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, the love is the fullness of the law and this knowing the time that for us the hour has come literally now now to to wake to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now 
than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Do you notice that Paul talks as if we're not saved? And won't be saved until we wake up? Which would mean that um, we're all <coughs> asleep. Are we asleep? In Ephesians, Paul writes this, Therefore, he says, or it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Like Jesus, Paul equates um, death with sleeping, and then talks as if we're all dead. And when he writes, it says, or he says, it's a bit confusing to know exactly what he's talking about, but I suspect that it all goes back to, to this. Genesis 2, sixth day of creation, God makes Adam, he makes man, puts him in a garden, puts a tree or trees in the middle of the garden, and speaks an utterly fascinating word, okay? This is what he literally says. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you do not eat of it. For in the day of you eating of it, dying you do die. You do not eat of it. Kind of makes you wonder if he did actually eat of it. Then God, who is love, says this. It is not good for the man, the Adam, to be alone. That's us. Adam obviously can't find God, who is his helper, and who is right there with him in the garden. And so God puts the Adam, which is all of us, into a deep sleep. Tardema is the Hebrew word. And there's no mention of God um, waking the Adam up before he does what God says he does not do, which is eat of the fruit. The deep sleep, or, or Tardema, is mentioned in only a few other places in all of Scripture. God puts Abraham in a Tardema as Abraham watches God cut the covenant and walk between the pieces. Isaiah prophesies that God has put Jerusalem, and that's us, in a tardimah, and then over and over prophesies that she'll wake up for the glory of the Lord, quote, will arise upon her and nations shall come to her light. She doesn't wake up until Jesus rises from the dead. Remember, the people come out of the tombs and enter the city. It seems that that is what Paul's referring to when he wrote Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ, our helper, will shine on you. And it seems that's what he's referring to when he wrote Romans 13.11, which we just read. The hour has come. Now's the time for you to wake from sleep because the day is at hand. Paul actually believes, I think, that all of us are, are sleeping. And yet, we're conscious, which means we're dreaming. When we're asleep, our mind can do almost anything. Such as? Well, imagine you're designing a building, right? You consciously create each aspect. But sometimes it feels like it's almost creating itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah like I'm discovering it. Genuine inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in a dream, our mind continuously does this. We create and perceive our world simultaneously, and our mind does this so well that we don't even know what's happening. 
Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the, uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming? You're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. hurts like hell when you're in it feels real feels real but it's not real that clips from the movie you know inception leonardo uh, dicaprio has entered ellen page's dream with some weird new technology and of course she doesn't know that she's dreaming that's the way it is in dreams and so i love the question i think it's a question that we all ought to be asking each other all the all the time he says you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? So how did you get here? Don't you ever ask that question? What am I doing here? When she realizes that he is not simply part of her dream, that is the world that she is constructing with her mind, well, that realization is nothing short of apocalyptic. The 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics was just given to a group of men that experimentally verified Bell's inequality theorem, which clearly indicates that Niels Bohr's Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is correct in asserting that reality is not actually there unless someone is looking. In other words, we're like all dreaming. And yet, someone appears to be dreaming all of us because we're like interacting with each other, kind of like in the, the same dream. Uh, indeed, quantum field theory indicates that we're all fundamentally connected, not only just connected, maybe even like the same thing. And now I'm just mentioning all of that stuff to say maybe Paul really meant this stuff in Romans. And we ought to seriously think about it for it might just explain a whole lot. We're dreaming. You know, when I dream, I exist in uh, another me. When we preach through Romans 5, we preach about I and me, remember? I am the changeless observer that observes me. I am spirit and I observe me, that is my psyche, my soul. I'm the breath of God. According to the Bible, I'm the breath of God in a bag of dust that I call me. I think I control me. 
I think I even create me. And in a dream, I do. In a dream, I have absolute authority. And so I imagine me and assume that that me is real when it's nothing but an illusion. My dream. It's based on what's real, and yet it's my image of me and not me. Sometimes that's enjoyable, and so I try not to wake up. You've all had that experience, right? Sometimes that's terrifying, and I can't wake up. If you're like me, you've dreamed that you've failed in hundreds of thousands of different ways and then waking from your dream just, you know, praising God. Oh, thank you, that's not me. That wasn't me. And yet, you and I, we, we actually do fail all the time, right? Well, just what if? What if you woke up right now? even though you think you're already awake. We always think we're awake when we're dreaming. What if you woke up right now? You might just cry out, hallelujah, praise God, that wasn't me. I was dreaming. I'm another me, the real me. So anyway, this is my point. When I dream, I create a false me and I create a false you. I never actually relate to the real you, only my image of you in my dream. The Jesuit priest Anthony DeMello once said this, nobody ever rejects you. They're only rejecting what they think you are. Nobody accepts you either. Until people come awake, they're simply accepting or rejecting their image of you. That's kind of devastating, and yet also kind of liberating. Maybe every time you judge someone with your knowledge of good and evil, you're, you're just dreaming. And you actually have no idea who anyone is, including yourself. When I dream, I create a false me, a false you, a false world, and maybe a false Christ. An antichrist, to use the Greek term, an imitation Christ, a, a false authority, which is actually the false me, for I think I create myself and I save myself. That, that's a false God and a false me, all rolled into one. A false God-man. So I'm just pointing out, okay, I'm just pointing out that number one, my consciousness can exist in a reality where I have absolute control, where I'm the sole authority, and we call that dreaming, right? And number two, my consciousness can exist in a reality where I have to surrender control to other authorities. And we call that being awake. And you see, well, that would explain a lot, right? A lot that we've been talking about. Hopefully remember that Paul's been talking about the old man or the old Adam and the new Adam, the new man. In Ephesians, he calls them the false and the true. So maybe that old Adam, Adam is, is my dream of me and that new Adam is reality. But at any particular moment, I can be conscious in either, in either of those me's. My dream me or the reality that actually is me, and that would explain a whole lot of the book of Romans to me. In Romans chapter 11, Paul wrote this, from him, through him, and to him 
are all things, but I'm afraid and I worry, I get anxious, I condemn, which means I must believe that some things are not from him and through him and to him, which must mean that I'm dreaming. In Romans 8, Paul wrote this, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor authorities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and yet I feel separated. Which means I must be dreaming. Romans 6, Paul wrote this, the old man was crucified with Christ. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, and, and yet I, I still sin. So is Paul telling me to lie to me about me? I don't think so. I must be dreaming. And Paul is speaking a word into my dream, a word that will wake me up to who I actually am, who I am. Which means I'm not my own dream. I am actually God's dream. And all my ugh, confusion right now is the fact that I'm just now beginning to wake up. I'm waking up. You could think of each red dot in that middle figure. You can kind of see there's black and red dots. You could think of each red dot as a moment in which I make a waking decision in light of the truth or in communion with the truth. And each black dot as a moment in which I make a decision in the dark, dreaming that I am the truth. So you can think of yourself this way, as a confusing mix of good decisions and bad decisions, that is God's judgment and your judgment. Or maybe you could think of yourself this way. Remember we talked about this, with all the good decisions trapped. Do you see that? Inside of all the bad decisions. Romans chapter 7, verse 22, we talked about this on Easter, remember? He, he, Paul wrote, I delight with or in the law of God in my inner man, as if the law was like a living law in his inner man, encased in his outer man, the way the inner sanctuary was encased in that old stone temple. It's like his true self is trapped in the illusions of his false self, the man that he thinks he has created or still must create his ego. And so, and so Paul can dream he is his own authority in the outer courts of the temple that is his soul. He can dream that he creates himself and he saves himself and justifies himself. He can dream that he is old Rabbi Saul. Or he can subject himself to the authority in the inner tent, the inner sanctuary, the inner man. He can be conscious that he is a child of God, that he is the beloved in whom the Father is well pleased. And now I, I can't connect all of the dots for you, but real quick, I just want to point to some, some dots and say, I, I, think, um, I think they connect somehow. So the new man is eternal, and remember that's not just endless time, that's more like in full time or time outside of time. The new man is eternal and the old man is an illusion of space and time. 
The new man is God's judgment and is of the age to come, meaning he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change, but is the manifestation of I am that I am. The new man is who I am, and the old man is who I am not. The old man is the product of my judgments in space and time. The old man is the tupas, the image of the imprint of the, of the new man. The old man is my dream of me that is not me. The old man is who I think I should be and who I am not. The old man is the product of the lie. In the garden... You remember there's a garden inside each one of us. In, in the garden, God said to, to the man who is all of us, he literally said, you do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, dying you die. You, you do not eat, said God. So, so do you? Or are you dreaming? At Niels Bohr's funeral, Albert Einstein said this, and I quote, People like us, who believe in physics, know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. In biblical lingo, eternity is reality, and chronological time is an illusion. It's a dream. According to physicists, the only way we can discern the flow of chronological time is through the experience of increasing entropy, or to put it in common lingo, the knowledge that in this world, everything dies. The second law of thermodynamics is that in a closed system, entropy, chaos, always increases. That is, everything dies, and to observe, observe this, to observe this requires time, chronological time. In, in eternity, okay, Stick with me just a minute or two more. In eternity, everything just is, right? Everything just is. So my existence is never in doubt. I just am and would never consider being not. But in time, everything is contingent on what came before. So I might be and I might not be in the future, in time. In time, everything is an effect dependent upon a cause. So if I want to imagine or dream that I am the cause of the effect that is me, I would need to forget eternity and dream a fantasy in the illusion of space and time. Perhaps, perhaps, maybe when Adam took the fruit, he became a closed system and was trapped in time the flow of time. I'm just saying that perhaps, perhaps, maybe, maybe we really have been and now are and forever were raised up together and seated together in Christ in the heavenly places just as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And perhaps the things that have been will be removed. The things that have been made, says the author of Hebrew, will be removed, and only the unmade will remain, and we will remain. <laughs> Which would clearly imply that we actually are somehow eternal. 
And yet God is allowing us, he's allowing us to dream an evil dream in order that we would wake and know the good who is the life, who is our helper, know him for the first time, which will be all of time. It will be something our minds cannot conceive of, an eternal now. It seems just impossible to describe in our current and confused condition. (laughs) But it sounds like we are children asleep on our father's lap, having a dream that is turned into a nightmare. But children who are being wakened by a word, a word whispered in our ear, so we would rise from sleep and we would just cry out, oh, daddy, 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 there's, there's no place like home, no place like home, there's no place like home. And check this out. Even if this entire world is just a dream, there are eternal things in this world which are not a dream. And of all the things we will see on that day when we wake up, and when we wake up finally at home, I think the most glorious will be the wounds in the body of the Word of God, the Son of Man, because He is absolutely real and absolutely eternal, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and yet He received those wounds, those eternal wounds, in this temporal world of space and time. And he's our helper, made fit for us and waking us from a nightmare. He's reality. He's the word of God. So the word of God is you do not eat from the day of you eating of it. Dying you do die. The lie of the snake is literally dying you do not die. That is, you're trapped in a perpetual nightmare from which you will never wake up. But God said you do not eat. So, so do you? I mean, I've really been wondering about this. In my dream, I sure do. Do you or are you dreaming? I think another way to say this is, are you evil or good? Well, that was an incredibly long detour, and I cannot... Okay, so if you have questions, go, I cannot connect all of, all of those dots. But when we took the detour, okay, I was just pointing out something that isn't confusing, actually, if you think about it for a minute, but it's actually rather clear, right? Number one, my consciousness can exist in a reality where I have absolute control, where I am the sole authority, and yet, in that reality, I am utterly alone. I'm dreaming. And two, my consciousness can exist in a reality where I have to surrender control to other authorities. That is, I'm not alone. (laughs) I'm awake. Right now, I think I'm awake. And yet, I do seem to have total control over part of my reality. And I call that part of my reality me. or my body. I mean, I just think a thought and my hand will move. But I can't just think a thought and make your hand move. And so it's tempting to see you as my problem. 
And yet the fact that I can't control you clearly implies that I am not alone. So, 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 so maybe I'm still dreaming and being tempted to not wake up. Maybe I'm being tempted to sleep so I won't hear the truth praying in my garden. Nevertheless, not my will. You see, it's my will that creates the dream, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Dream, dream, dream. Dream, 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 dream. I can make you mine. Taste your lips of wine anytime, night or day. Only trouble is, gee whiz, I'm dreaming my life away. You know, it's my uh, dreams of Susan that are the biggest threat to the real Susan and my marriage to Susan and our life together. It's our dreams of church that are the biggest threat to the true church, the church that is always at hand, <laughs> that is right now. That's the place eternity touches time. It was our dream of a Messiah that caused us to crucify the real Messiah and plunge the entire creation into darkness. It's nice to dream, but dreams can turn into nightmares. At one point in the voyage of the Don Treader, Chronicles of Narnia, the children, the crew, they sail toward this dark island. When out of the darkness, they hear the sound of screaming. A man is swimming toward their boat. He's in the grip of an absolute panic. The crew pulls him up from the sea and onto the deck, and then Lewis writes this. The moment his feet reached the deck, he said, fly, fly, about with your ship and fly. Row, row, row for your lives. Row for your lives away from this cursed shore. This is the island where dreams come true. That's the island I've been looking for this long time, said one of the sailors. I, I figured I'd find I was married to Nancy if we landed here. Fools, said the man, stamping his foot with rage. That's the sort of talk that brought me here, and I'd better have been drowned or never born. Do you hear what I say? This is where dreams, 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 you understand, dreams, they come, they come to life, they come real. Not daydreams, dreams. They all think about that for a moment, and then they begin to row with all their might away from their dreams. When my children were little, they dreamed all sorts of things, and what a nightmare it would be if those things came true. Coleman wanted to be a backhoe. Coleman's here this morning visiting, and I said, Coleman, you mean you want to drive a backhoe? And he said, no, be a backhoe. I want to be a backhoe. What's wrong with you? I mean, something's wrong with you. Becky, Becky dreamed of being a mermaid. That's half woman, half fish. That's a monster. John wanted to live at Chuck E. Cheese forever. That's a dream that will turn into a nightmare. And Elizabeth wanted to rule the world. And actually, each of them, I think, at some point dreamed of being me, which means they couldn't be loved by me and there would be no we. 
You know, it's the rulers and authorities that are most able to make their dreams come true. Or at least force people to do their will so it seems to them that their dreams are coming true. And yet in Scripture, maybe everywhere, they seem to be the most miserable and lonely and most likely to go insane. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? He congratulates himself on his great power and authority. Then he goes insane. He goes insane until he learns that God is king and makes kings and breaks kings and remakes kings. And then he starts worshiping God in joy. Even David and Solomon have to learn the lesson. Pilate looked at truth and said, what is truth? Then crucified the truth. Then according to the legends, he took his own life after going insane. Acts 12, you can read about this in Scripture. Herod kills James and imprisons Peter, for it pleases the Jews. Then he sits on his throne. Some people shout the voice of God. Herod doesn't argue with them. That's just insane. And an angel strikes him on the spot, and his body is eaten by worms. His best friend in Rome, because he grew up in Rome, had been a boy named Caligula. Caligula, uh, once made emperor of Rome, declared himself to be God, appointed a horse to the Senate, and died insane. The authority in Rome, when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, was just about as miserable, lonely, and insane as hell. We talked about him last time. His name was Nero. And perhaps most insane of all is that I dream of being just like them. An authority. An absolute Authority, miserable, lonely, insane as hell. A dream that turns into a nightmare from which I cannot wake myself, for myself has become my own dream, my own authority. So, how do we wake up? <laughs> Last week, we preached on Romans 13, 1 through 9. We talked about the way in which Jesus, the presence of supreme authority subjected himself to the authorities and in this way he conquered all the authorities he didn't simply do whatever they said and yet he made himself subject to all their decisions and in this way he transformed all their decisions in fact he's still doing it paul quotes isaiah in the next chapter saying Every knee will bow. That would include Nero's knees, Pilate's knees, your knees. Every knee will bow and every tongue give praise. That means Jesus will conquer the empire. And do you remember how it started? He cried, Father, forgive them. That would at least include the people that nailed him to the tree. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And seeing this, Scripture points out that it was when the Roman centurion saw this, the man who had just taken Christ's life on the tree, the Roman authority, he dropped to his knees, surrendering all authority to Christ, saying, surely this man was the Son of God, the Son of all authority. And do you remember how Jesus conquered Paul? The centurion was Roman authority, right? The symbol of Roman authority. Paul was Jewish authority. When Jesus appeared to Paul in a blinding light on the road to Damascus, the first thing he said was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, he subjected himself to Paul. In other words, he had made himself vulnerable to Paul, in the very flesh of his body, the church. 
And do you remember how Jesus conquered you and, and will conquer you? He made himself vulnerable to you. Every time you sin, you violate him. The will of God, the life of God, the truth of God, the good that is God in flesh. Every time you sin and your old man is a walking, talking manifestation of sin. Every time you sin, you make yourself the authority. And you violate the authority of all authorities, God himself. And you can only violate the authority of God, the word of God, the judgment of God, because the authority of God has subjected himself to you. In other words, he, like, really loves you. He has made himself so incredibly vulnerable to you. So you can hurt him. And you did hurt him. And in this very place, the cross, in this very place, the place where you hurt him, in this very place, in the place where all your supposed good deeds are revealed to be actually the devil's deeds, I'm talking about the work of your own ego, in this very place where you were not his people, you become his people, to use Paul's words. In this very place where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In this very place where you took his life, he does not repay evil with evil, he repays your evil with himself, the good, and so he makes you good, he gives you his life, and he is the life, and love, and love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, so if you bear anything, believe anything, hope anything, endure anything, it's God in you, believing, hoping, bearing, and enduring within you, and even asks you, that's the new you. That's the true you, the one that's fully awake. So in this very place where you had fallen asleep and dreamed that you were God, you wake to the love of God. <laughs> and you know the place for the very first time. And you know yourself for the very first time. You discover the sinner to be the revelation of the saint, and so you praise God without ceasing, saying, Thank you, thank you, that I am me, and you are you, and my neighbor is my neighbor, for everything is good, and it is finished, and I am forever been, I'm forever home, and, and, and I have always been safe at home, but, but I was sleeping, dreaming my own dreams, but I repent, for, for you, O oh Lord, are the best of all dreamers, and I am your dream. March 18th, 1958, Trappist monk named Thomas Merton was running errands in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. Trappist monks normally separate themselves from ordinary life and ordinary humanity in order to live a rather close, cloistered religious life. But on this day, Thomas Merton did not, and he had a vision. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, writes Thomas Merton, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I, I loved all these people, all those people, 
that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. And I suppose my happiness could have taken form in the words, thank God, thank God that I'm like other men, that I am only a man among others. It is a glorious destiny to be a member of the human race. Though it is a race dedicated to many absurdities and one which makes many terrible mistakes, yet with all that, God himself gloried in becoming a member of the human race. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate, as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are, and if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. <laughs> There's no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. There are no strangers. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is, in God's eyes, if only they could all see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. At the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God, which is never at our disposal, from which God disposes of our lives, which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind or the brutalities of our own will. This little point of nothingness and of absolute poverty is the pure glory of God in us. That's not just nothingness, that's absolute somethingness. It is in everybody, he writes. And if we could see it, we would see these billion points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that would make all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. I have no program for this seeing. It is only given. But the gate of heaven is everywhere. <laughs> in Thomas, in Paul's words, Thomas Merton put on Christ. He woke up. And to use John's terminology, he had an apocalypse. He had the apocalypse. He saw the resurrected Christ in his resurrected body with his face shining like the sun. So how do we wake up? Well, you can't just wake yourself up. You must be woken up by a word that enters your dream, and we just spoke a word. And Jesus is the word that has descended into each and every nightmare like a seed. And now by that grace of God, 
with the faith that you've, that you've got, <clears throat> even if it's the size of a seed, I think in some amazing way you can now agree to being awakened by looking for the light and by listening for the word that's all around you, especially by subjecting yourself to the authorities all around you. Now, I don't mean to freak you out, but you are surrounded right now by little Nero's and Caligula's and Pilate's and Herod's and beasts and harlots and antichrists, imitation Christ, who actually think they made themselves. Self-made men, self-made women, and that they saved themselves, justified themselves. You're surrounded by the authorities who crucified Christ and for whom he freely chose to suffer and die and in whom he makes his home now. And I think maybe always did like a seed buried in the depths of their being behind the curtain in the inner sanctuary, whether they've come to realize it yet or not. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to higher authorities. Every person is an authority. In Philippians, Paul tells us to regard others as higher, hooper, echo, same word, higher than oneself. So the higher authorities are all around you. They're all around you. Everyone you meet is a higher authority. Subject yourself to them. Love them, in other words. Make yourself vulnerable to them. Yes, they can hurt you, but God will help you. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid wrath. Remember, wrath is love and life bottled up like a blood clot is bottled up in a, in a blood vessel. One must be in subjection not only to avoid wrath, but also for the sake of conscience or consciousness. Paul just told us in the last chapter that we, though many, are one body. And you thought it was like just poetry or something. I think he meant it. One body in Christ. Uh, are you conscious of that? As you go shopping. <laughs> Or are you still dreaming? Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you will not com commit adultery. And shell is an antiquated word. It's just a simple Greek verb. You will not commit adultery. You will not murder. You will not steal. You will not cover, covet. And any other command are brought together under one head. This, this, that's the literal translation of that amazing word, anakephaliao. Brought together one head in the word, the logos. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You will. The love does no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, the love is the fullness of the law. And this knowing the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, hypnos, hypnosis, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Like you could just reach out with your hand and, and, and grab it. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the weapons, the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the daytime, not in orgies. Remember we talked about that last with Nero. In drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Merton put on Christ at Fourth and Walnut for he had a vision. And then he began to love others as he loved himself. St. Paul is giving us the same vision. And he's not threatening, he's prophesying. You will love your neighbor as yourself, as you do love yourself, not as 
you should love yourself, but as you do right now, love yourself. And I do love myself. Think about this for just a second. If I hate you, it's because you're not working for me, (laughs) the authority. But if I hate me, it's only because I love myself. And me isn't working for myself. That is I. Even if I kill myself, it's only because I'm trying to protect myself from me. You see, even in my arrogant dreams, I have inside knowledge about myself. And that is that I am far more than simply me, a bag of dust. You could say I am worth the sacrifice of me, for I can know and be known by the truth. I can love and be loved, and and that's life. I am the breath of God even even if I'm just utterly disgusted with me, which seems to happen quite a lot. I'm usually totally unaware of who I am. But when all my accomplishments have been stripped away, I still am who I am. And and you see, maybe when all of your accomplishments have been stripped away, maybe I will see that you also are who I am. In other words, the divine in me will recognize the divine in you. At the cross, all of our proud accomplishments are stripped away, and Jesus looks at you, and he looks at me, and he thinks, you are who I am and who we are. And in the light of that cross, maybe we can do that for each other all the time. That is, anytime we love our neighbor as ourselves. We cannot, okay, so be clear on this, we cannot make ourselves God And yet God has made all of us himself. That's an apocalypse. I woke up, I don't know, yesterday, the the day before, with this picture in my mind. (laughs) This is two people holding hands and jumping from the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center was where a bunch of authorities, just like us, tried to rule the world. And in this picture, all of that is crumbling to the ground. This is two people holding hands and jumping from the World Trade Center. But the apocalypse is not that planes would fly into the World Trade Center. The apocalypse is that these two people would choose to hold hands. (laughs) You don't need the planes to have the apocalypse. From the night he was handed over to the authorities, that is us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, "This this is my body given to you, my me given to you. 
take and eat and do it in remembrance of me, how my members come back together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant. It's an eternal covenant. Think about that one a while. The covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we must discern the body before we eat and drink at the table of, of the Lord. And, and this, this is the representation, remember, of that body. We've been working on this for the last several uh, sermons, and now I'm going to make an incredibly complicated, complex sermon profoundly simple. Okay? Watching? This is who you think you are. And this is a metaphysical impossibility. <laughs> this is a dream that has become a nightmare. And this is waking up. This is reality. This is putting on Christ. So as you come to the table this morning, discern the body. In other words, see people and see what is placed within those people. And then with the eyes of faith, try to see what Paul saw on the road to Damascus. Try to see what Thomas Merton saw at Fourth and Walnut. Try to see what Peter saw in uh, the transfiguration on top of the mountain and then also later walking out of the tomb. What Isaiah saw. Remember when he saw him high and lifted up enthroned in the temple? What John saw, the revelation of Jesus, which means apocalypse. And when you do, well, I think you'll begin to look at people differently. I think you might even reach out and hold them by the hand and look them in the eye. And when they talk, you'll listen. And when you speak, you'll be honest. In other words, you'll make yourself vulnerable to them. And when you do, you invite the apocalypse. So, so just pray with me. In fact, you don't have to do this, but maybe you just say these words out loud after me, okay? Let's pray. We subject ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. Subject ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. And we subject ourselves to you, and we subject ourselves to you in the temple of our neighbor, in the temple of our neighbor. We invite the apocalypse. We invite you to wake us up. For Lord God, we have made you very small. 
I need to apologize. That sermon went way longer than I meant it to. I looked at my watch and went, oh, crap. Um, uh, but but it, we're getting toward the end of the Romans. And I think Paul is painting such an incredible picture and nobody believes it. <laughs> Hardly anybody sees it because I think we chop it up in so many little pieces and then we think, well, that's just poetry or Paul's just, uh, that's just a manner of speaking. But I think uh, he's saying what all of scripture is saying, what Isaiah saw in the temple, what Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, what Thomas Merton saw uh, fourth and Walnut, what I, my daughter saw one night after uh, worship. And that is that you are, you are sitting next to the very presence of God in a temple of flesh. So um, I apologize for how long it was. Next time I'll try to, I'm working it, trying to make it shorter. But this is the point. Simply believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.